poverty. It's crime. Unemployment. Corruption. Accountability. The energy crisis. Inflation. We are worried. That South Africa has myriad problems on all fronts is a given. But the time has come for us to look for real solutions. I'm Jeremy Maggs, and this MoneyWeb podcast will discuss those solutions on how South Africans can solve problems by having tough conversations and drawing on the insights of South Africa's top business leaders. Welcome to Fix SA. Hello, everybody, and a warm welcome to a new episode of Fix SA here on MoneyWeb. It's our podcast that delves into the heart of South Africa's most pressing issues, finding opportunities for change, growth, and progress. I'm Jeremy Maggs. I'd like you to consider this. A country brand is more than just a logo, a slogan, or a marketing campaign. It's about a country's international reputation, its cultural richness, its political climate, its business opportunities, and the perception of its citizens. The power of a strong country brand is immense, directly impacting tourism, foreign investment, and international relations. It can also foster national pride, stimulate economic growth, and shape global narratives. As we aim to fix SA, understanding and strengthening our country brand, I think, is of utmost importance. It's all about how we present South Africa to the world and ourselves and how we harness this narrative to drive the change that we really want to see. And with that in mind, I'm joined now by Tebi Kalafeng. He is a preeminent global African authority in branding in Africa and a foremost advocate for brand-led African renaissance. Tebi, a very warm welcome to you. First of all, let's dive straight into it. How does a country's brand directly impact its reputation and its economy? Well, I mean, every single country competes uh, for several things. They compete uh, for investment, they compete for trade, they compete for talent, and they compete for tourism. So if any one of those are affected, then the country becomes uncompetitive. For any decisions or actions by a country, whether it's people or its leaders or its institutions, affect any one of those important drivers of, a, of any country's economy. So I'm wondering to myself as we start, if there are successful examples of countries that have managed to effectively brand themselves and maybe what we can learn from them in attempting to fix South Africa. There's multiple countries. And I'm going to start with the smaller countries because I think they've tended to do a a much better job uh, than the big countries. You know, the big countries being Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, if you look at them as perhaps the anchors of the continent. So let's look at a country called Mauritius. I mean, because Mauritius was known for a long, long time as just a place to visit, to lie on the beaches, and to, uh, to I, I, I don't know what else people do uh, at Mauritius, but that's what Mauritius was pretty much known for. But Mauritius has pretty much repositioned itself to become the headquarters of the continent. So now all the big corporates in Africa are looking at how they can move their businesses uh, to Mauritius. And uh, we can name quite a few examples. I mean, if you look at Africa Leadership uh, University, which started first out of Africa Leadership Academy, which was in South Africa uh, Mm. for 10 years. And after that, when they tried to open the university in South Africa, they reached so many difficulties in trying to get visas for their talent, trying to get um, regulatory approvals for the university. And as a result, they went to Mauritius. Mauritius said, we'll make it easy for you. What do you want? What do you need? If you follow these processes, we'll make it easy for you. Mauritius is one example in terms of how they are positioned. And, and I've just used a, a university mm. as an example. 
example. But there's multiple other examples of what Mauritius has done. Actually, many of even South Africa's businesses have got their headquarters in Mauritius. And another business I've worked with, uh, Minet, for example, which is a, an insurance company which bought all the Aeon rights across Africa except for South Africa. They decided their headquarters should be in Mauritius because it's easy, uh, even though 50% of the revenues come out of Kenya and many of the management come out of there. But they've said it'll be easier for us to work out of Mauritius because of Mauritius is creating an enabling environment for us to do that. That's how Mauritius has positioned itself. Mm. You look at a country like Rwanda. Now, Rwanda in 1994 uh, was in tatters, if you remember, of the genocide of which killed one million people in three months. But what has Rwanda managed to do uh, since then? Rwanda since then has managed to reposition itself as, if you will, the technology capital of Africa. But they've also positioned itself as the meetings capital of Africa. So all the consequential meetings that relate to Africa, uh, whether it's a meeting that made the decision that finally ratified the AFCFTA, Africa Free Trade Continental Trade Agreement uh, area in 2018, that was made in Rwanda. Whether it is the meeting of the Commonwealth, which recently then Prince Charles and now King Charles held, that would be done in Rwanda. And whether it is any meeting to do technology. I mean, they've created a technology uh, center, if you will, or, or innovation hub. And in an innovation hub, they've attracted globally all the companies which want to come and use Rwanda as their technology capital. Then you can come closer to us in South Africa if I just use three examples. And that country is called Botswana. What has Botswana done recently with the BS? Uh, not even recently, over the years with the BS. Botswana has realized that they've got two major resources. One, I guess, is tourism. Another one is the diamonds. And what have they decided to do? They've said, let us reposition Botswana as the center of excellence for diamonds, not just as a place to mine diamonds, but as a place to mine and to beneficiate and to sell diamonds from. And recently you've seen they've reached a groundbreaking international agreement with the BS where they'll be receiving a whole lot more revenues out of the diamonds which are being sold out of Botswana compared to what they've done in the past. So th- just those three small countries, and those countries I think on average, what, uh, Rwanda's got about 10, 15 million people, Botswana about one, one and a half, two million people, Mauritius, I guess, uh, the same. And so, but what they've shown, they've shown the power of clarity. If you and clarity, uh, confidence, and certainty because they've decided let's be clear how we want to position ourselves and let's create certainty for those who want to come to us that if you want to come to do business with us to live in this country this is what you can expect. I mean, for Rwanda, for another example, I forgot Rwanda. In Rwanda, you can start your business and get your license for less than 48 hours or so, and you don't get stuck in legislative hurdles, if you will. So just those three countries have shown how any country can reimagine itself and can create clarity in terms of what they stand for and what is important to them and what's going to drive their economies. So it's that power of clarity and certainty that you talk about that then creates an enabling environment. So before we start talking about fixing South Africa and fixing the South African brand and the perceptions of the country. In your opinion, what are the challenges, what are the difficulties that we face in improving our brand reputation? Where are we getting it wrong? Well, I think for for South Africa, and I think we'll have enough time in the next few to talk about uh, individual areas where I, I think we need to be paying attention. From a South African perspective, I think the biggest problem for us as as South Africans is the lack of clarity about what is South Africa. 
what does South Africa stand for? So we have in many ways not been able to define brand South Africa. Yes, there's many ways from a nation branding perspective. We talked about what we want to stand for as a country, but we haven't defined the one important thing. Who are we as South Africans? What binds us as South Africans. You know, we came from 1994. There was a euphoria of 1992-94 about a new South Africa. I think Desmond Tutu coined it as a rainbow nation, finally at peace with itself. And then you came with Mandela in 94. Then never again shall any nation be uh, be subjugated to the way South Africa was. And then we came 1996 uh, when we launched the new constitution of South Africa, which was based on the 1955 Freedom Charter in a large way and, of course, negotiated through Cortesa. But at the time when the constitution was launched, Mbeki spoke about what it means to be an African, really clarifying and defining that unity in diversity. But since then, I think the biggest problem is, one, we've not been able to deliver on the unity in diversity. Uh, secondarily, I'm not sure if you ask anybody what does it mean to be South African, anyone can actually define what that means. So, Tebi Akalafeng, let me ask you that question then. As a brand and marketing specialist, what do you believe in 2023 we should be standing for? And once you've answered that question, how do we go about fixing that? Well, <laughs> the definition of what we should be standing for in South Africa in 2023 is a very, very difficult uh, challenge because we are certainly, if you will, at the beginning stages again of a country in which we should be much further down the line in terms of what we stand for. I think what we need to do, we need to get back to the basics. And getting back to the basics is trying to define First, from a social perspective, what does unity and diversity mean? Because that's embedded in our coat of arms, it's embedded in our constitution. I think we need to define from a competitiveness uh, space, where do we want to compete as South Africa? Because identifying a bit clear, clear like Botswana has, for example, like Rwanda has, for example, like Mauritius has, for example, is you need, you need to understand that if a country is competing for talent, for trade, for investment and for tourism, you need to define where you are going to lead. So we need to lead from those. The third one is from a talent. What type of talent do we have in South Africa? What do you expect from a South African from an individual perspective? So there's a social part of it, which is what does unity and diversity mean? And from a competitiveness space in terms of where do we want to compete in the world and even in the continent rather? And then third, as a people uh, who South Africa's rich or talented people, but a lot of them are now beginning to leave the country, including uh, people of color, which is an uh, unusual uh, scenario, is how does South Africa want to define itself from a talent perspective. I think if I broadly, before we get into the specific details, is I think those three areas are important, social, competitiveness, and from a talent. And of those three, unity and diversity of the competitive set and talent, what is the most important? Uh, to me, what's the most important is a social definition. Is defining clearly from a people perspective what is the fabric of South Africa, uh, who we are, because that impacts so many other things. And right now, I may have just put it broadly from a unity and diversity. But remember what this all uh, does. Is if you speak to somebody who says, I'm American, uh, you know what that means and you know what they will fight for. If you speak to somebody who comes from Rwanda, so, I mean, many years ago, I went, first time I went to Rwanda, I got into the country and I asked the porter, and I said to porter, oh my goodness, first time in your country, which tribe are you? I know you guys have gone through such a difficult challenge. Which tribe are you? And he said to me, I do not have a tribe. I am Rwandan. 
And that's a language they speak even up to today. And when you speak, and then beyond Rwanda, they then can explain to you what it means to be a Rwandan, which is uh, that unity of tribes rather than looking at them as a tribal person, but looking at in terms of what they will fight and defend. To me, that's the most important thing. Because you see a whole lot of other problems, whether it's the issues about corruption, what is the issues about leadership, what is the issues about education, the issue of crime. You want to know. What type of people do we have in this country? And what is it that they will fight for at all costs? So, Tebi, um, about fixing the fabric, if, if that is critical, um, it's difficult, though, because there is so much anger, there is rage, there's despair. I will grant you there are pockets of optimism, but overall there's a very negative feeling in the country. We need, if I'm hearing you correctly, a, a change of attitude. So how do leaders need to change their approach and this is not just up to government this is leaders in every aspect of society whether it be civil society whether it be business whether it be at a provincial local or national government level but what enables us to start that process in order to begin the fix first to me you know in uh, we there's a saying that says we get the government that we vote for we get the leadership that we vote for if that is true, then we're in trouble. Then we need to relook and rethink who we are as a people. Meaning that a few things that I think are important to me, one is to understand that leadership is not about the position, but leadership is about impact, the impact that you have to create, quote-unquote, a better life for people. So one is, to me, is that issue of, quote-unquote, accountability. How do the ordinary South African hold leadership accountable how do the ordinary South African themselves understand that they, wherever they are, as Mother Teresa once said, you must start with what you have where you are. How we can create multiple cells of excellence, if you will. If you think about how these charismatic churches, what make them flourish, they create what you call cells, small cells in little neighborhoods. So to me, those cells become how an individual can create impact where they are. Whether we like some of these leaders we've seen in Soweto, like in Tantalax in Soweto, or the, the leaders that we've seen in uh, Deep Sloot recently, who were tired of the conditions of their neighborhoods, whether we like them or not, what they show, they show the ability and the importance of how when citizens themselves understand that they too have got the responsibility to act and to lead change, if you want. Uh, of course, from a broader political leadership, I think there needs to be a rethinking about what leadership is. Because leadership, we need to go back to that seventh leadership. Uh, what we are seeing now is we're seeing a vying of positions. We are seeing people more excited and more emboldened and more urgently pursuing how can I be a member and how can I get into parliament, how can I get into coalition government, rather than saying that this is the change, this is the impact that I want to make in society. And I want to use the position to improve the position of the people that I serve, rather than I want to use the position I have to improve my personal position with my bank manager or with my friends and all those. So I think the biggest challenge we have from a leadership perspective, uh, to me, is understanding that. Mm. It's focused on servant leadership, that you do not get voted to get into position to drive with uh, 
3,000 or whatever number of blue lights chasing you, uh, moving ordinary citizens to the side, but only remembering who you are during election times when you now come knock on knock on their doors and now all of a sudden you want to sit and eat with them, all of a sudden you want to smile and joke with them, but before the elections you elevate yourself above them. You are no longer a servant leader, you are now a god above them. But when you need them, you understand the concept of servant leadership. Tebi, um, the, the word that you've used, accountability, in, in your argument is so critical. So I'm, I'm wondering how we become better at accountability then, because the argument would go that so many South Africans have either given up on accountability because they will say nothing happens if I raise the issue, or there's a risk factor. People are afraid of speaking up. The challenge with South Africans is that I've got a very short attention span. What you do have in the media, we can be proud of. We have one of the freest media, one of the boldest media across the continent. They do not mind or are able to take on any challenge. Of course, there'll be a pocket of those media which perhaps will be driving a particular agenda. Uh, but then that's how life works, even in what we call the most democratic uh, nations in the world. What we need to do is we need to increase the attention span of South Africans to be able to focus on an issue and see it through to the end. South Africans, we don't do that. South Africans give up too quickly and say things like, oh, nothing will change. Of course, we've seen that things can change. What brought South Africa here in 1990 to 94 is an example of what persistence can result in. So if we can go back to that character that we used to have as South Africans, to be persistent, to fight for something that we believe in, to fight for something that we have earned, or to fight for something that we deserve, then we will be able to hold people accountable. Of course, if I'm a politician or any person, they don't even have to be a politician, and I know that if I hold Tebe Kalafeng, uh, Tebe Kalafeng is going to make noise for two, three hours, then it's going to move on to the next subject. Of course, I then grow an attitude of, don't worry about them, he'll move on to the next subject in the mm. next two minutes. So what we need, we need to go back to that character that helped us to deliver the South Africa that we hoped for, that we were so enthusiastic about when we went to vote. Thousands and thousands, curving lines in 1994 for the South Africa that we'd hoped for and we fought for and many had sacrificed their lives and their livelihoods and their families for. Do you think we can do that? I think we can do that. I think we have seen... Whether we like him or don't, somebody like Atlanta Lux during the riots two years ago or so, you can see how an individual, how he persistently drove an agenda. Of course, I think it's within our character. It is within our DNA to be able to hold anyone accountable, to fight for something. Uh, the problem that we have right now is that we are living in a country with little to no consequences. So because there's little to no consequences, even in the smallest of our spheres, because forget the biggest things, in the smallest of our spheres, uh, whether it's in your job or whether it's in your neighborhood or whether it's in your city, if there cannot be consequences for many of the actions in those areas, if somebody comes and steals from you and nothing happens to them, if somebody breaks the law and nothing happens to them, those all cascade into a bigger problem of mass inconsequentiality, if you will, of mass unaccountability. Teb, you've laid out some big thinking. Um, obviously, one cannot fix all the problems that you have outlined, particularly when it comes to issues like leadership and accountability. So 
what would signify some success in your argument if we were to start implementing your thinking and we came back maybe in six months time what would be a sign of improvement i've got a few areas that i think we can improve and we can go one at a time and uh, you can uh, reflect on all those the first one is education one of the things that we did in 94 leading up to 94 there was a lot of energy in teaching people about their civil responsibility, teaching people about their civil rights, teaching people about what voting means and why we should vote. And that enabled people to make, quote-unquote, the right choices uh, for them. Then, but if you now reflect to the first big problem that we have called education in the country, you now have 8 out of 10 kids who are struggling to read as the recent survey by Progress in International uh, Reading Literacy uh, indicated recently that alarmed all of us. If eight out of 10 kids are struggling to read, you have a problem. If 82% of the children in grade four cannot read for meaning, we are in trouble. Yet we claim South Africa is 95% literate. I think we need to get to the core of the issues that we have in South Africa. And we know our rankings. I think we were last in math and science, uh, according to the World Economic Forum or so. If you look at those big challenges about proper literacy, do people know what they're reading? Do they know what they're signing up for? Do they know what they're voting for or who they are voting for? Do they know what they're going to get? If people do not have the basic education, even the degree is not going to solve the big problem because we know that the problem will just be compounded by the time they get to university. And uh, we've even seen instances where people graduate from university and when they come out of university, they are actually not even work ready. Forget work ready, that whatever they've picked up from university is actually garbage and cannot be used towards any productive contribution to the economy. Education is the first biggest problem that we face in the country. And of course, we know why we have that problem as well. We've had multiple systems of education since 94. And with that problem, we cannot solve the problems of South Africa, unfortunately. Tebby, a final question. Um, In the bigger picture, this is not necessarily your problem or my problem to fix because uh, we are getting older. So, it's up to what I term the baton-holding generation and what their responsibility is. We have a rich tapestry of young talent in South Africa. Um, What is their role then in continuing to hopefully build South Africa because some of the steps mercifully would have been taken to fix the problem? So what is your ask of the millennial generation, the Gen Z generation, as, uh, as, the, as, as the argument perpetuates? Nobody is more despondent, nobody is more at risk than the millennial or the, the youth. I mean, if you look at the stats for South Africa, it's anywhere between 50 and 60% of the youth are unemployed. And if we add then the fact that there's 18 million people who are on social ground, so it literally means about... of South Africa is not productively employed or productively uh, involved in South Africa. What we then need to do, we need to not think differently. We don't have to think differently. Let's just focus on the youth because they make up 70% of the people under the age of 30 across the continent, perhaps the same in South Africa as well. If those are the stark realities we are facing, we now need to think differently. 
need to think differently, not to create 5,000 jobs for youth, but rather to re-engage youth and find from within youth, uh, are there any solutions which the youth themselves can create? And we're beginning to see a whole lot of those. I mean, I think you've seen some of the recent, for example, Youth on Brands uh, Awards, which we've done uh, uh, recently, that there are many, many young people out there who have given up on finding a job and rather creating jobs. They are creating businesses, they're creating brands. So what we need to do as a country, with our inability to absorb the unemployment, let us use many of the institutions we have, whether it is the IDCs, or whether it's the NEFs or the SAFAs, uh, to create opportunities and funding and build the skills of the young people to be able to themselves to create jobs, not just on themselves, for their peers. I mean, if you look at a young man like Theo Baloi and the Gao Sofala, who collectively employ about a thousand people. These are young people who started their businesses and their brands no less than five years ago. And we're just talking about the direct employment. Now, imagine if they go further. You know, speaking to Theo the other day, I said to Theo, I said, Theo, when are you building the factory in South Africa? He says, I am struggling to find government partnership or incentives. He says, if I can get an opportunity or partnership with the government, I'll be able, the guys in China where we're getting our shoes have said, we will come and teach your people on how to produce. Now imagine now that multiplies the number of people that we feed. Because remember, every single person you employ is responsible for another 10 or so people at home. So if you can fix that problem, among the youth, we can fix the education, we can fix the energy crisis, which is perhaps a more medium to longer term problem in South Africa, and we can fix the crime. We will be in the right space. I mean, what kind of a country has got a 10% rise every year with murders, with sexual offenses? It means that South Africa itself is not a safe place for South Africans because most of the people who are affected, forget the tourists and forget the foreigners, most of the people who are affected by this crime are South Africans themselves. We need to create a safer South Africa for South Africans. We need to create an enabling environment for the young people in the country to be able to create the opportunities to absorb the unemployment issues. We need to create education. We need to reform the education such that the education enables people to make informed choices, but most importantly, that they can contribute productively to the economy of South Africa. Tebia Kalafeng, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to this Fix SA podcast. For more episodes posted every second Friday, go to moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.